Welcome back into Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay. I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, the venerable Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert of Birch Run Financial. Gentlemen, good to be with you as always. Yeah, good to be here, Jag. We're really looking forward to this conversation today. And I cannot believe that we are in October and the, the holidays are coming up and pumpkin spice is making its, making its <laughs> debut once yes. more. And here we are. This year has gone by too fast. Ed, if you could do me a favor. Yes. I'd like you to make sure there's a calendar in Alex's office because every month he says, I can't believe it's another month. I want to make sure he knows how a calendar works. <laughs> it's amazing. That's usually what happens each month. It's a new month, right? <laughs> but it is officially fall now. I know Alex was talking about pumpkin spice on like September 1st or something. I think it was a little early, but now it's prime time for that. I have a 14-year-old daughter. I'm sorry. Pumpkin spice is just sort of a way of life at my house. What can I do? The coffee chain I won't mention by name, pretty sure they make more money off sugar than they do caffeine at this point. I think you're absolutely right. But hey, that's capitalism for you. Supply and demand. <laughs> Which leads perfectly. Oh, such a great segue in today's topic. And honestly, today's a topic that I'm really excited to talk to you guys about because, you know, we talk a lot about markets and that stuff is really interesting and fascinating. But this is something that really hits home for me because my wife and I are looking to maybe get into a new home in the next year or two. So we're talking about the real estate market. Interest rates have skyrocketed over the last year and a half, yet home prices are still high. So we're going to start uh, with Ed, who's going to explain a little bit of what's going on with these home prices and interest rates. And then Alex will chime in with some historical perspective about housing and more importantly, some advice for those who are considering buying a home at this point as I raise my hand. Ed, over to you. What is happening in the real estate market on October 16th, 2023? Well, Jag, first, I think it's important to establish that we're talking about residential real estate today okay. and not commercial real estate. So these are homes that people either live in full time or own and rent to somebody else or own as vacation property. So commercial real estate is a totally different animal, totally different situation right now. And we're also going to discuss national average prices mm -hmm. since real estate price movements in various markets can vary pretty significantly, okay? Oh, yeah. So for context, let's start with housing prices just prior to the pandemic. In the fourth quarter of 2019, the median average home price in the U.S. based on selling prices was $327,000. So Half of the houses sold that quarter were more than 327, half were less than 327. So these data are not skewed by outliers like $10 million houses or anything of that sort. And at the time, mortgage rates were about 3.75%. Mm -hmm. And we all know what happened in early 2020 when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of stimulus, rates were cut drastically, and it pushed up real estate pretty dramatically. So by the end of the 2021, just two years later, home prices nationally had risen 29% to $423,000 from $327,000. Big difference in two years, right? Oh, yeah. And the average mortgage interest rate had declined to about 3%. And so why did prices go up? One, lower borrowing costs meant lower payments, mm -hmm. which pushed up prices because people could buy more house with the same amount of money. Uh. And that decline in mortgage rates gave people about 10% more buying power. When you add in constrained supply, there were just simply more buyers than sellers. We all remember the bidding wars, right? And they're still mm -hmm. happening in a lot of markets. You had that big jump in home prices. All makes sense. Constrained supply, 
plus cheap borrowing rates equal higher prices, right? Anybody I know that's looked into buying a home in the last year or two, they've had to put in such a competitive offer. I've talked to yes. real estate agents about this. Yes. You're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. And the lines are still there. Yeah. They're not as long as they were, but the lines are still there. A house across the street from me just went up a few days ago. They had an open house on Saturday. It looked like an absolute circus. It was mm. pretty wild. I'm assuming they probably will get a deal done very quickly. Anyway, let's fast forward to today. The average mortgage rate today is around 7.8% for a 30-year <sighs> fixed loan. Yikes. National home prices, though, are actually pretty similar to where they were two years ago in late 2021. Not much different. Mm -hmm. But to borrow the same amount of money today as two years ago, comparing 7.8% to 3%, your payment would now be a whopping 70% higher, Jag. Wow. So if you borrowed $500,000 at the end of 2021 at 3%, your payment would have been about $2,100 per month. Now to borrow that amount of money, it'd be close to $3,600 per month, almost a $1,500 a month difference. Oh my gosh, I can't even get my head around it's that. It's a massive difference in affordability. Yeah. And one that you would expect in an efficient market would likely lead to a big drop in home prices. You would think, you would think. But why haven't national home prices declined drastically? And the answer is a lack of supply that's gotten even tighter. So demand has declined somewhat where you might not have 15 people bidding on a house, you may have five, right? Yeah, yeah. Bidding over the asking prices. And what's happening is, you know, there are less buyers. Some people are getting priced out of the market. Either they don't want to take on a, a larger payment and they're sitting put, or they can't afford a larger payment, right? But at the same time, though, there are a lot of people that would be moving now who are staying put for the same reason. When you sell your house and move, you can't take your mortgage with you. <laughs> so if let's say you and your wife sell your house and buy a new place, to keep your payment unchanged, you have to borrow less money. And the majority of people in our country who have mortgages right now either borrowed very cheaply in the first place or refinanced a couple of years ago when rates were extremely low. That's what we did, yeah. Yeah, and they don't want to give up those loans. So even though demand has declined, as some people have gotten priced out of the market, supply has declined just as much, which has held the prices high, right? You are absolutely preaching to the choir here, Ed, because my wife and I were thinking about making a move and we're kicking that can down the road a little bit when we look at our low mortgage rate now yes. and what we could get for the same payment uh, in a new house. So you're absolutely. That's exactly right. And you think about that and you think about the opportunity cost. What else could we do with that money, right? Oh, yeah. And now there are some housing analysts who think that there's just simply a lag in the price interest rate relationship, which does happen sometimes. It's like when the Fed raises interest rates or lowers interest rates, we expect there will be a lagging effect. In, in economics, they call the long and variable lag, meaning you can't predict exactly how long it'll take till the uh, interest rates have an effect. And that may be the case, right? Mm -hmm. You know, home prices now are a bit less than they were at the end of last year, but they are where they were 
when rates were 3% two years ago. And now, like I said, on average, it's 7.8% as of last week, uh, national average. And that's absolutely fascinating that interest rates have gone up that much and prices are still where they were two years ago. Yeah, I mean, these are things that my wife and I have all discovered as we, you know, start poking our head into the real estate market a little bit. And yep. it's, uh, you know, do we want to go to an open house this weekend or do I want to sit around and watch football? Well, when you run the numbers, I think I'm just going to, you know, put my feet up on the couch. Yes, absolutely. It's a tricky time if you're looking to get in the market, particularly for the first time, Jag. Absolutely. If you guys sell your existing place, at least you sell an asset that's appreciated a lot. Yeah. It's the first time home buyers that I think have the biggest challenge at this point. Oh, absolutely. Which Alex will get into shortly. Yeah, let's turn it over to you now, Alex. How does this real estate market fit in from the historical perspective? It gave us a good snapshot of where we are now, but probably would be good for some context. And what advice would you give to the people who are considering a home purchase, as I raise my hand, at this point? <laughs> well, you know you know me, I love historical context of things. And <laughs> three most important words I can ever tell someone is, you know, or expand the graph. Right. And that's something we've talked about a lot. If you look back over long, long periods of time, you tend to see trends that are much more predictable than short-term ones. So that said, I'll first start off with something that I've heard from a number of people, and uh, it's typically people who are a bit older than I am. I'm 43, so these are typically people in their 60s and 70s who say this sentiment, who convey this sentiment. And that is that I can't believe people are complaining about high interest rates. You know, when I bought my first house, the mortgage was 14%. I love hearing that, you know, that context, because in the early 80s, uh, interest rates went absolutely through the roof. Absolutely. And that's when they were walking uphill to school both ways in the Ex snow. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you could get you could get 12 percent on a CD at the bank. Well, yeah, but inflation was running in you know the mid teens. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So when we look back at 30 year fixed mortgage rates um, over the 2010s, so the last full decade that we went through. 30-year mortgage rates averaged 4.1%. And that's relatively low. Um, and historically speaking, over for a long period of time, that's very low. But today, mortgage rates, like Ed mentioned, are just shy of 8%. So they've nearly doubled from their 10-year average post-financial crisis. And if we look, though, at the average mortgage rate over the last 50 years, so going back to before any of us was born, the average interest rate for mortgages over 50 years is 7.7, hmm. which is right about where we are now. Huh. Now, granted, that takes into consideration the ultra-high mortgage interest rates in the early 80s, and it takes into consideration the ultra-low mortgage interest rates from 2021 and, and uh, around that time. But broadly speaking, we're not in an environment where interest rates are massively higher than where they have been historically. Uh, if we were looking at 15% mortgages, I'd say that's statistically very anomalous. Mm. You know, high sevens, it's high, but it's really only high relative to the last decade, which, again, relatively speaking, was much lower than average. So I don't think this is where interest rates settle. I don't think this is where they remain. But I do think that we're in an environment where it's higher than what we expect, but it's not abnormally so, at least for the time being. Yeah. There's another interesting metric uh, that I found, and I should add that all the data that I'm going through here is courtesy of Ycharts and FactSet uh, together. There's an, a neat statistic I found called uh, home price versus disposable income. Huh. And essentially just measures the average home price versus the average take-home after 
baseline expenses and taxes income that people get. It's a little bit misleading because it's not a perfect measure, but when we look at it in context, I think it makes sense. And over the last 10 years, uh, the last decade, the ratio of average new home sale prices to per capita disposable income was about 8.2. So the higher that number is, the more expensive houses are relative to what people make. Mm -hmm. As of when I did the research for this, which was a few days ago, it was 8.5. So a little bit higher than what the long-term average is, but not massively so. Yeah. Um, do you want to know what it peaked at in 2022? I'm almost afraid to ask. 10.2, which is about 25% higher than it is uh, on average relative to income. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty significant number. It is dipped back down. Income is doing okay. Jobs are relatively plentiful. And we're not seeing a massive economic turmoil being caused by home prices and interest rates being a little bit higher than average. So broadly, I mean, we're not looking at anything uh, that's that different when it comes to disposable income versus home prices. One of the biggest arguments people make about investing in real estate as a home is that there's a lot of added cost and the interest cost is significant. But real estate as an investment, it's very easy for anybody to argue that buying a home in which to live is a solid long-term financial strategy. Yeah. And you think of it this way, the average price for an existing single family home in the United States, generally speaking, rises over time. There have been exceptions to that. There have been periods that home prices have declined and we might be facing one at some point soon. But in the long run, home prices tend to go up. And while you're paying that mortgage off, regardless of what the interest rate is, your income should be rising as time goes on. You get inflation adjustments, promotions, raises, things like that. So your income, your disposable income rises. But if you've locked in an interest rate for 30 years at a fixed rate, your principal and interest payment never changes. Mm. So over time, you know, you won't notice it in the first three to five years, but 15 years down the road, that mortgage payment won't feel nearly as burdensome as it did when you first started because your income has gone up, but your mortgage payment hasn't. So essentially, your payment is getting cheaper and cheaper relative to the amount you're making as time goes on. And there's not a lot of investments that have that exact characteristic where you see your costs stay the same, but your pay keeps going up. So that's a favorable aspect of it. The other reason I like the idea of, of a primary residence as potentially an investment vehicle, I mean, not directly, but you know, it just happens to have that side effect, Yeah, is the big bugaboo that everybody has now is, oh my gosh, interest rates are so high. I don't want to take out a 30-year fixed mortgage at 7.8% because they, you know, the interest rates are going to come down at some point and I don't want to lock myself in. Well, that's fine. But in general, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is such an amazing tool for the consumer because it has something like a one-way valve. Okay. Think about it this way. A 30-year mortgage sounds like a terrifying commitment. It's 30 years of this payment that's never going to go down and it's always going to be there, and well, for 30 years at least. And you've got this big burden hanging over your head. And what if the interest rate's too high? What if interest rates drop and I could have gotten it cheaper? Well, in general, you can always refinance. You can always go out and say to the bank, hey, you know what? Interest rates have changed. I want to pay this loan off and take out another loan at a cheaper rate. As long as you qualify for it, as long as your credit's decent, your income's there, then it works fine. That one-way valve, it's great. If you want to refinance when rates drop, you're allowed to. But it's a one-way valve because if the bank notices that interest rates are going up, they can't come to you and say, hey, Jag, you know, I know we lent you money at 7.8%, but prevailing interest rates are much higher now. 
So we're going to have to charge you eight and a half. I mean, they can't do that. Once you've locked in at seven something, you're locked in. You can change it to go down. They can't change it to go up. Does that make sense? This is why I love talking to you guys every month because you clarify concepts here. I knew what you said previously, but the way you just crystallized it for me is, yes, you're committed long-term to this mortgage payment. You can always negotiate it down, but the bank can't negotiate it up. And that is huge. And that should take away some of that scare factor for folks who are afraid of that 30-year commitment, that you do have that safety valve, like you said. One of the big things that frightens people is that, you know, when the financial crisis was coming to a head in the mid-2000s, like 2005 through six, yeah. there were a lot of adjustable rate mortgages being issued. And interest rates have been relatively stable and were declining a little bit. And it was very easy to sell an adjustable rate mortgage. And I, I won't say unilaterally that adjustable rate mortgages are a bad thing. Of course. Because I don't, I don't think they are. I think they have their place. But if you are looking to buy a house that you plan on living in for at least a few years, uh, at least five years, we'll say, okay, it almost never makes sense to get an adjustable rate mortgage. It might save you money in the short term, but you're opening yourself up to the potential for a big, unpleasant surprise. I've counseled a number of people when looking at different financing options for homes that the more complicated you try to make it, the more bells and whistles that lending product has, <laughs> the more likely you are to get an unexpected consequence. And for me, there's nothing certain about the economic future. Right. There are very few certainties in life. And I mean, you know, philosophically, I believe that, but financially, <laughs> I absolutely believe that. Right, right, right. And I should say that, you know, when we look at what the potential downsides are, to being a little bit fancy when it comes to financing. The potential downsides are crippling. The potential downsides to being a little bit more conservative, well, you may pay a few extra dollars and you may not optimize everything absolutely perfect. But if you keep things simple, you don't try to overcomplicate it, don't try to get fancy when financing a house, it's generally a very straightforward operation. And if you, if you get the wrong rate, a year from now, you could refinance at six. A year after that, you could refinance at five. I mean, remember back in the 1980s when interest rates were so high, people were still buying houses at 12% interest, but then interest rates came down and they just kept refinancing and refinancing. Now, one word of caution about refinancing yes. is that it's not free. Uh, refinancing does cost money. And before you enter any type of transaction like that, now if you're refinancing from like 7.8 down to four, yes, you're going to save money over the course of the loan. <laughs> um, that's almost a foregone conclusion. But if you're refinancing from like 7.8 to 7.5, that might actually cost you more money and it might not be a good idea. So before going into any type of transaction, you should go into these transactions with open eyes. Um, if you cannot do the calculations yourself, if you can't figure out whether or not this is going to be a good thing for you or a bad thing for you, find someone like me. I love doing these calculations. I always enjoy seeing you know, the different sides of this equation. And if you have someone that you can lean on for that type of guidance, by all means, it, it should be the first call you make. If you have no one on which to lean for that type of guidance, you have our phone number. We're going to leave it at the end of this podcast. You can always call us. If we don't know your situation very well, we may not be able to give you a lot of detail, but we can get some information and give you a broad brushstroke version of where you think you should go. And that's something we like to do for anybody who asks. We talk about that every month. They don't necessarily have to be a client. If somebody has a question, I know financial literacy is huge for you. I know, Alex, you crunch financial numbers like some guys and girls crunch fantasy football numbers. This is your thing. So um, <laughs> if any of our listeners want to come talk to Alex, you, Ed, anybody at your team at Birch Run Financial about this or anything related to their finances, how do they best find you? 
Best way to reach us is uh, through our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com, B-I-R-C-H-R-U-N financial.com. You can also email our general box, which is info, I-N-F-O, at birchrunfinancial.com. Or if you like things the old-fashioned way, just pick up the phone and give us a call. Our direct line here at the office is 484-395-2190. Say it every month. We're always happy to have a conversation. So if you do have a question, even if you're not a client, pick up the phone and call. We'll be here. Alex, Ed, appreciate your time as always. And Alex, try not to be surprised next month when we say it's November. I I can guarantee (laughs) you I will be surprised next month that it's November. (laughs) Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. He won't be able to believe that it's almost Thanksgiving. (laughs) Thank you, Jag. Thanks, Jag. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, not necessarily those of RGFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not report to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments for it to in this material. There's no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecast will occur. Information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and is not constituted a recommendation. Examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not assure a profit or protect against a loss. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member of FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Birchland Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Birchland Financial is located at 595 East Research Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.